Welcome back to the Pop of the Man podcast. I'm your host, Jay. With me today, I have my always loyal co-host, Delon. What's up, Delon? How are you doing, Brother Jordan? I'm doing great, fam. And you know what we do. We give you our takes on basketball, music, and everything in between. Today is a special episode. It is an artist spotlight. It's, I think this is the first artist spotlight we've done this year. And basically what we do is we take an artist that we found and we thought was real dope, and we wanted to share his music and his experience with you, the listener. Uh, joining us today, we have Shy Leezy, who was the winner of our Demand Madness tourney back in March. And if you don't know what Demand Madness is, that's a tourney where we get 16 different artists to compete against each other on Twitter. And we have you, the fans, vote and tell us who you think made the best music. So, with that being said, to, we, today we have Shy. Shy, how you doing, fam? What's going on, man? Thank you so much for the podcast having me, man. It's love. I'm glad we're glad to have you here, fam. So let's get right into it. Uh, just so the viewers know a little bit more about you, you told me you're from Staten Island, New York. Were you born and raised in Staten? Well, I was born in Manhattan, but I mean, most of my upbringing is Staten Island. So yeah, mm -hmm. my, my upbringing is Staten Island. Gotcha. So tell me about your first encounter with hip hop. Like, did you, like, you know, New York is usually like a hotbed for hip hop where, uh, that's like a, the culture is very, very big there. But like, did you grow up in it? Were you like exposed to it at an early age? Was like, did your parents introduce you to it? Friends, cousins, your uncle, maybe it was just like yeah. a personal adventure. Yeah, so like that, that whole experience was started from a very, very early age. Like I just remember going to school and um, I remember my friends would just be sitting there singing Rough Riders Anthem. That was like my first 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 like exposure to like anything hip-hop related like we always stop drop shut it down over the and i'm like yo what's that song y'all keep singing what's that song y'all keep singing and they're like yeah. dmx rough riders is that i'm like yo, will you hear that music and stuff and then my man put me on and then i remember my first time i had i had a, a big stereo in my mm -hmm. in my crib in my room my parents you know, brown parents, they just stash everything in your room. It's like yeah. storage and stuff yeah. like that. So, so like we, I had this huge, like old school Sony sound system joint. And I remember playing with the tuner. And I ended up getting it on Hot 97, which is yeah. a big on uh, your station and all yeah. of that. And then I asked when I was like, I was hearing all these songs and I heard, oh, I heard Rough Riders. I was like, oh, shoot. And then I started singing a lot of Eve records. I remember Eve was really hot at the time. Yeah. So like, like I'm, I'm like a little boy, man. Like I'm not even like, I don't even got an Adam's apple at this point type yeah. shit. You know what I mean? So yeah, that that was like my first first early exposure to hip hop. It's crazy because especially in that era, all those rap songs had like a lot of a nursery rhyme feels. Like Rough Riders, even Nelly came in with like a nursery rhyme type of flow with it. So that makes sense, especially getting getting you in so young. Yeah. Um. But so when did you decide that hip hop was for you? Like that's what you wanted to do. I, I realized hip hop was for me the first time. Um my man played Changes by Tupac. That was like my first, first time. Now this is like, we're talking mm -hmm. two years after now, Rough Riders come out. Yeah. My man tells me about, uh, yo, there's this rapper named Tupac, yo, mm -hmm. and he, he's really dope. And he starts telling me his story. My man at the time was like, he's my age, but he was getting all the stories from his older brother. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? So he was yeah. always trying to pass it down to me as he was getting it. But you could tell, like, as you got older, when I learned about Pac's life, like, he was like, um, 
had misunderstanding like certain timelines of his life and shit. Like he would mix up like the first quad studio shooting with the last shooting of yeah. him where it took yeah. life and stuff like that. So um, he played me changes, he played me changes. And that's when I realized like, even as a kid, while I might've not understood note for note what he was talking about, I learned that, yo, the world is bad. Like, you know, it's rough out here. You know, and it it opened that window for me to see the world for what it really was, and that inspired me to like want I want to rap. I was like, I want to rap like that. I want to talk about what's going on in the world and everything and stuff. So that was like my early times. I was um like trying to emulate Pac and all of that. Like mm -hmm. a little, I'm a little kid and stuff. So like basically, you want to like make a difference with your music, inspired by changes. And I think I kind of like remember hearing something in your song Drones where you talked about like unrest in other parts of the and other parts of the world. Yeah. Yeah. So that that song particularly, like I wanted to talk about, you know, the drones in the sky and stuff mm -hmm. like that and how, how it um how it affects like uh, life in regular society in like a Middle Eastern country and mm -hmm. stuff. And I tried to make it uh, broad so like other all countries can like connect with it in mm -hmm. some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. So like when I listen to your music, there's like numerous Islamic references from your title from like the titles of your songs to just like lyrics and your music. How do you say that your upbringing or like your background or even like your religion has influenced the way that you approach the music, if at all? Yeah, I mean, when I was, you know, when I was first coming up and everything, you know, as, as an artist, you always trying to figure out like, what's your voice? Mm -hmm. What's your lane? And I think that's, that's probably the most difficult hurdle an artist goes through in the developmental stages of uh, his or her career you really want to find out what's your what's your niche and mm -hmm. stuff what's going to be the thing that when they they play shy you already know what you're getting right like yeah. if i if i pick a drake project i know more times than none what kind of songs are on a drake album what is, it's going to be a pop record it's going to be a girl record there's going to be like a, a a rap record where he's going to flex his bars a little bit. You know, you know what you're getting from every signature style artist. So what is your signature style? So for me, it was like, yo, uh, I want to make a lane where there's not nobody that I know, at least, that mm -hmm. was really rapping about the things that I was rapping about. Rap about your people, like yeah. rap about your upbringing, rap about culture, little cultural references that you feel like um people that, look like you or from the region that you are maybe not necessarily y'all have the same exact you know ideologies yeah. but y'all can connect in, in so many ways and stuff so that's when i started that's when i started creating this whole idea of like using islamic references i remember when i was like a little kid i used to go to saturday school to learn how to read and write farsi and then there would be like a religious mm -hmm. section in, in the in the teaching where like we learned how to pray and stuff. So all those yeah. little teachings of like of the Quran and like the story of the prophets and all yeah. and all those little stories I took with me. I remember it and I kept it in me and then I started like putting it in certain lines here and there, just splashes of it mm -hmm. to show like culture and identity and differences. Because hip hop is a very is a very, very personal experience. And I feel like those the artists who are most successful are those who are able to project their life into the music so that people are able to feel them. Even if they don't t necessarily like relate exactly to, like they've never experienced those same things. Like Kendrick Lamar is like my favorite artist. And even though I have not lived the life he has lived, the emotion and the personalized experience he puts into his music allows me to feel what he's saying. And I feel like that's a mistake that so many artists make is that a lot of times they just rap 
and they forget to put what makes them them in the music. And I can say when I listen to your music from the get go, I understood you had a unique voice who had something different to say than like just the average rapper that I've actually listened to. So that's dope. Another thing Appreciate about that, that is like a lot of times the kind of music you make, the subjects you're talking about, those are subjects that never die. Like we can talk about a lot of things in our music. Um, five years later down the road, that'll be antiquated and won't matter. Like when I went to your YouTube, when I went all the way back, the stuff that you were talking about then is still relevant to you, your people and all that kind of stuff. So it doesn't sound dated per se. Exactly. So right. it's a timelessness to the subject matter content. Oh, absolutely. I'm a big I'm a big fan and believer of um having making something that ages well with time too. Especially mm-hmm. as a as an independent act, as somebody who's on the come up, you wanna make not just obviously your best music, but you wanna make music where like as time moves on and as the platforms get larger and larger, you can re-roll out some of these songs and remind people that, mm-hmm. oh, you know, I made this by the way. And that was something that I learned from Jay-Z because uh, he did that with Reasonable Doubt, for instance. That was the classic example of uh, what happens when you mm-hmm. make a, a really timeless project and maybe it didn't get the just due at that particular time, but when you re-roll it out, it's like a huge spark, like, oh my God, I forgot that you made this. Yeah. And so like, yeah, so like, uh, I remember that album came out in 96, but nobody cared, Not I can't say nobody cared, but nobody really was paying attention like that because yeah. everybody was biggie out or pocked out. Yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't until 99 when, when for instance, Jay started going commercial, he mm-hmm. re-rolled out the whole album yeah. and it got it to just do and then it became like this certified plat- it became like known throughout all communities that yeah. yo this is a great project and that's what he spe- specified in his uh book decoded and uh, i remember reading that and i said Word. to myself like yeah a few years back i was like you know this is something this is very valuable to keep with you try to make music that you can always re-roll out and remind people who are just getting to know you that's dope. I'm gonna ask you this, because like in the same vein of like creating music that like resonates throughout the ages, throughout the years, do you feel like there's a single song you've made is probably your most important? Like, what do you feel like is your most important song? If if you feel like there is a song like that that stands above the rest? Oof. Um, I mean, the people have their picks and stuff. I mean, yeah, I I got I love them like my my kids and stuff. Um. I, my personal one, and everybody always says to me, really, that one? And I'm like, yeah, I love that song. Um, it's March 2nd. That's mm-hmm. like, that song to me is a song that, you know, it, it kind of gives you an introduction of like who I am. Like mm-hmm. just real, like from the jump, from as soon as the, the, the verse drops and stuff, you just, you let, you com- it's very commanding. Mm-hmm. And I named, I named the song March 2nd after my birthday. And it just gave me, again, like, my favorite rapper is Jay-Z. So, like, you know, it gave me, he has a song called December 4th. J. Cole has a record called January 28th. And uh, I think, I feel like when rappers make a song that's dedicated after their birthday, they really go in. It's it's, mm-hmm. it's personal. It's coming from somewhere. And uh, my song, March 2nd, for me, gives me that same kind of vibe. That's great. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. All right. So, well, it's on so the Halal Music EP, by the way, if you want to hear that song. I'll make sure to check it out. So let's talk beans, rice, and lamb. So why did we release it on April 20th? <laughs> well, it's funny you mentioned that. So it was a couple of things that were going on. In the process of uh, making the project, 
Um, I made a song throughout the process, uh, a song by the name of Halal Kush. So I made the song Halal Kush. Obviously, you know, I like smoking weed. And, um, you know, I wanted to create a, a weed record that that was a signature Shy sound, but also because, you know, throughout hip hop, we've always had weed records and stuff. Yeah. So I was like, yo, we could make a weed record, but in our version, like my way, the mm -hmm. way I would talk about it and stuff. So when I made the song and everything like that, um, at the end, I started playing with this idea of like this dude who would be like a radio DJ and yes. stuff. So that's why when you hear a song at the end, it's like you just listen to W-E-E-D and all this, Salad D yeah. and all of this, yeah. DJ Salad D's and all of that. So I originally made that song. And then after that, after we finished making all of the songs, um, I would constantly play this record and everybody would love it. And when we were compiling up the songs for the project, I said, you know, it would be dope if we had him be kind of like the theme of the whole project and yeah, kind of like stretch it out so it's not so it's not so redundant yeah. and just like put it in between breaks, like intermissions and stuff. So that's that's kind of what it was. And then when we finished it, we realized the mood of the whole project changed when we add this this little theme. It just kind of like now it's not just a bunch of records. Now it just sounds like a whole cohesive project yeah. being brought together. You know? mm -hmm. So you've mentioned we and our sound a, a couple of times. Who is Life on My Ave to you, and like what is y'all relationship? So Life on My Ave. So this is why I say out. So Life on My Ave is a, a good friend of mine. Uh, we started out in the same studio together uh, when I was interning at recording studios. Uh, Av was uh, with another group of people, and they had a room rented out over there. And I and I was working out of another room. And the original roots of it was we just knew each other from around the way. And then uh, after that studio got shut down, we went our separate ways, but we still stayed in contact through social media. And he started seeing me like like being really heavy on the music and just coming out with freestyles, coming out with songs and stuff like that. So he originally just reached out to me on social media and was just like, yo, I see what you're doing. Like, y'all, I gotta, we gotta lock in, we gotta work and all that. I was like, yeah, definitely. Then we ended up crossing paths on the street, just like, just cross, like casual, Word. like we city and we crossed paths and he stopped me and then we started talking and stuff. And then he was like, yo, we got to lock in, we got to lock in. So then I decided, okay, yeah, I'm going to pull up to your crib. So I pulled up to his crib and then he started playing me all these beats. And I was just going crazy in my mind. Like, yo, this, this is amazing. Yo, we got to do something. We definitely mm -hmm. going to work and stuff. So that was like the, the origins of that. And then uh, he started coming to my crib and he started, we started making beats right then and there. Like he would come mm -hmm. out with all these samples and I'd be like, yo, that one right there. And then he would start cooking it up. And I'd be like, yo, fix this, this. And then I'm just like, start thinking of bars in my head and stuff. So, uh, I mean, the the chemistry there was clicking immediately. Like he had the sound and I had the kind of sound that we both had the same style and sound that we, we were both interested in and we locked in. So this, is, done. so this is not a partnership that started with this EP. It was actually, he was actually involved on the last album too. No, he wasn't involved on the last album, mm -hmm. but he was uh, that that was just more of like that was my doing. And then also just working with various different producers. Gotcha. This project was just specifically he and I. And then like as we started going deeper and deeper into the project, we're like, yo, you know, 
it'd be dope if like you know since you producing it we could just it'd be like on some watch the throne kind of thing you know yeah. what i'm saying or like a or if you take it further back like a eric b rock kim kind of situation yeah. eric b laid the rock him spit the bars type shit so that 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 was also the idea and then i was like yo we both promote each other too so it's like you know if people know you now they're gonna know me if people know me they're gonna know about you so it as works. you can see yeah as you can see from this interview because now we're talking about we can't talk about you without talking about him when it comes to this project that's that's so true and that's dope yeah. and i like and also yeah. like like we don't really get those kind of projects anymore we, we, we kind of get them a little bit more like when like Big Sean did that one take with Metro Boomin, but we do get, a, we, I think that's one of the cooler things about hip hop is when you have the artists and the single producer slash DJ, cause then it creates a more cohesive project. So it doesn't sound like the rappers yeah. like all over the place. It gives a, like the artists a stable ground to work with. Like you said, a sound. And I think your sound yeah. does match well with you. For sure, for sure. Definitely. All right, so uh, Beans, Rice, and Lamb is a six-track EP. Is there something bigger coming? Is it leading to something? Uh, I mean, it's going to be more music on the way, man. I got a new, I'm already got, like, I'm conceptualizing the next project already, and um, we're already getting in the works of shooting another music video. I got a music video coming out this mm -hmm. week, and, um, yeah, just still work, still working, nothing's stopping. So, like, between Alicia's Jam for the Sisters and Bitches Girl, you seem to be very appreciative of women in your music. Where does that need to express that in your music come from? Oh, man, that's definitely just being able to show that reach and that versatility as an artist. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mm -hmm. feel like every great artist should be able to show the reach that they have. Meaning, yeah. like, you don't have to... You, if you don't have to make like whatever is on the radio or particularly um, like a certain kind of girl record, you could make a girl record in your style, in your version. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? Like do do what I always tell artists, do what's comfortable in your own skin. You know what I mean? You mm -hmm. don't got it. If that's not you, that's not you and stuff, you know? Or if you can act it out, then you better better be a great actor. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. You gotta, you gotta, we really gotta paint that picture. So, you know, those kind of records I like because it's my way of just showing, you know, that I can make a girl record too, and I can make it sound dope mm -hmm. in my own way. So. Yeah. Like, I, like I said, I'm, oh, go ahead, Lon. No, you go ahead. Okay, but say like I really like um, Alicia Jam for so to speak. Uh, that, like when I listened to your, your other album before this one, it was like my favorite song on there, and I was like, okay, this guy's smooth as hell. And like I could tell, this is obviously a song geared towards the women. But at the same time, like you said, I can tell that it's not necessarily a what's, what's what's the word I'm looking for? Like it's not like just any typical girl record where guys like all try to like sing and be like mad melodic and trying to croon and stuff like that. No, you did it your way, and I thought that was dope to see your um, take on yeah, it, like so the, the um, female record, love record. Yeah, you know, it's kind of like you know, it's 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 a it's a mature approach too, and it's also like it's talking geared more towards like people who are in relationships with yeah. their ladies and stuff you know what i'm saying i don't feel like we highlight that enough you know i feel like everybody wants to be the man everybody wants to have like 20 girls on their arms i mean that's cool that's yeah. what you do but a lot of y'all got girlfriends a lot yeah. of y'all are, are in big relationships and stuff so I, I try to touch on certain topics in the song that a lot of 
men and women can really relate to or whether it be like arguments over little petty stuff you know yeah. what i mean draws on the floor and stuff like that you know what i mean you know i got to just kind of chuck exactly kind of people sit there and chuckle a little bit like oh yeah i know what you're talking about you know what i mean yeah um so your, your music videos dating back to three years ago are vastly different than the ones now so where do you find inspiration behind the music videos now because it's definitely been a step up in production and it seems like inspiration in them Oh, absolutely. Like, uh, that's that's part of the journey to me as far as like artistry goes, right? It's like it's like a pie chart. So you kind of like you see like where you're excelling in, what you need to put more emphasis on and stuff. So like when you when you see I love to keep all my videos so like you can actually see where we started and stuff and how I was a novice at it, basically, you know, mm -hmm. when it came to like the video process of it. You know, but then as you develop more and more, you want to, you start having ideas. You're like, because mm -hmm. when you first start now, you have a lot of ideas, but you don't know how to implement the ideas yeah. in your music videos. You're like, yo, how am I going to do this? How am I going to get people to be in the video and stuff like that? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a lot of pressure in a, when you first starting out and creating that. But as time goes on and you start talking to other creatives, you start seeing how other people do things, you're like, oh wait, I can I can do, I can create this feeling without having to have a $20,000, $30,000 budget. I can do this or I can go rent out space over there and get lights. Now I'm in the lighting business now. Now I mm -hmm. gotta think about what kind of lighting I need over here. And I gotta think, oh, I want a smoke effect. All right, how am I gonna do that? All right, oh, I need a smoke machine? All right, well, I bought a smoke machine. Oh, I need a backdrop now, okay. Well, how much is the backdrop? Oh, you can get a black one, we can get a green screen one, we can get a white one. So now, now you're in the video making business and yeah. stuff. But then when it finally starts coming together, you start seeing like music videos like I did with Freedom or Alicia's Jam mm -hmm. and stuff. And then you start seeing like small artistic concepts um, and you see the details that are behind all of that stuff. That, man, that Alicia's Jam video looks like you have a, but like, like you have a major label studio buzz on that. Though, so. Exactly. And it's, and it's really not. But, and and that's yeah. what that's what that's what somebody told me. They were like, "Yo, you don't need to have a big budget to shoot these music videos." And then you start seeing some of these music videos that are blowing up, and you're like, "Wait a minute!" You find out, "Oh, I shot this with iPhone, for instance." Yeah, you know, yeah. like Chief record went um viral, and he and he was on house arrest, and he shot it all under his iPhone. You know yeah. what I mean? So now, so when you start factoring in all of these things, you're like, "Yo, these guys are creating an imagery and stuff." with some of the most basic technology what are we doing what's there to talk about you know what i mean yeah get it's busy get creative it's more about the know-how and things like that like even like like doing this podcast thing a lot of people tell me they think the things that we do here is like very very hard and i said mm, not really I, th I actually think the same things you think it's like very hard like oh man how do i put a podcast together or how do i get like four or five people on how do i get people from different areas like you right, right right now and like Dylan, me and him aren't even in the same place right now. How do we get all these people in the same place to have a conversation? But a lot of times it's just sitting down, you know, going through the process. And as we, I started this podcast two years ago, I picked up a lot of different things that led me up to this point to be able to put this product that we have out now. So I feel it sounds like you gained a lot of useful skills during this time, like in terms of like learning how to put a video together. You know, probably stuff you didn't think you were going to learn how to do when you decided I'm going to be a rapper. Exactly. And that's and that's where it falls on the 
business, right? Like when mm -hmm. you go into business, a lot of artists don't realize you you are automatically when you decide you want to do this, you sign on as CEO of your own imprint of mm -hmm. what you are. So <laughs> once you become the CEO, right? you maybe not be an expert in all these subfields, but you have a certain degree of understanding or you mm -hmm. better have a certain degree of understanding of everything. So like, I would say like for me, I'm not Quentin Tarantino, but I understand what it takes to make a music video. Yeah. I'm not Pharrell or something with a beat, but I know how to put a beat together. I made my own beats before. Mm -hmm. And I can be in a room with a producer and tell them what's missing and what needs to be fixed. You know yeah. what I'm saying? The yeah. Engineering, the the writing aspect of it. So as 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 the nucleus of your brand, you have to be willing to to sacrifice your time and your energy in noting not just the stuff that you're into, but also the other stuff that is involved in the whole music making process. And I think that goes back to what we talked about earlier about making like personalized music by putting your imprint on the music by doing by having an understanding of how to make a beat how to do the lighting you're able to put your personalized your ideas you know put your imprint on the music on the production on the music video like it's all shy lazy even if you didn't necessarily make the beat even even though you didn't necessarily you know executive produce the uh, music video and that kind of makes me think of Kendrick Lamar and like how there was a, it was I can't remember which producer it was was talking to him was talking doing an interview and it's like yeah working with Kendrick Lamar is um it's a cool process because he knows how to make a beat and so i was in the studio and i was making a beat and he was like going and say hey can i change this or can i adjust this or can i try this so they i could create the beat in the exact image that he wanted but that was like a producer who knew nothing about if that was a guy who knew nothing about you know making beats he kind of just sitting there and he's kind of got to just take whatever the producer gives him but like someone like yourself can actually have some real input that the producer can play off of that's dope. That's great. Exactly. And understanding the language, too, because there's language to all of these different subfields, right? Like if mm -hmm. I'm talking to the producer, we're speaking in a certain producer lingo that's going to get whatever the kind of sound that I want is going to mm -hmm. come out of it. You yes. know what I mean? That you're only going to get that yeah. with time, experience, and just sitting there. Like I said, I, I interned out of recording studios. I learned how to track out vocals. I learned how to mix. So all of those things helped me along the process. Once you learn how to engineer, producing is right around the corner. Beat making is right around the corner. You know, if you know how to do one, you're going to know how to do the other one. So if you call yourself like the CEO of like your music and like that's a good um, analogy to use, do you have like a fixed team that every time you go into a project, like when you went to a project with Life on My Ave and like even like a project before that, did you have like a certain number, certain group of people that were like in the room working with you or that you consulted like on every project or is it like just case by case situation? Well, I mean, every project that I do is pretty much, I mean, as far as team goes, it's me. Um, my lady's the one who's my photographer. Word. She's also the one that holds the camera and stuff. So we mm -hmm. collaborate a lot on just the music video aspect of it, the visual aspect of it. We always working because she's a creative too. So we working on stuff. Um, I'm recording the joints. Uh, as far as producers go, like if I see you at an event, if I build with you, uh, you see me perform and stuff like that. I, I work a lot. So like with producers, I like to collaborate with a lot of them. And I bring mm -hmm. them in there and um, yeah, and, and I show them already what I got and they automatically could tell the kind of like signature sound that I got. So it's like, it's mm -hmm. very consistent.
Gotcha. You, uh, you just mentioned you performed. Can you tell us about your first performance? That's always a hilarious story in some kind of way. Oh, my first performance? Like, yeah. All right, so my first performance, I remember... Hmm. Okay, when we say first performance, you mean first time, like, as a kid? Or you talk about just, like, professional, like, on a... First time as an act. As an act, my first show I remember I did was at Webster Hall. I remember it was um, Jay Hatch's event. And Jay Hatch had used to have this thing called, like, uh, Get Your Buzz Up or something like that. It was, like, a showcase kind of thing. Yeah. And I remember uh, I, they, they, they sent me an email. I don't know how they got my email. And uh, and there was like, send me a song. I'm only picking X amount of artists or whatever, right? So mm-hmm. I, I go and I, I started, this is before I even had my, my voice, what, what kind of rapper I wanted to be. I just had like a, a, a compilation of a couple of songs that I worked out of in the studio and I sent it to him. And then like a couple weeks later, I get this whole congratulations, you've been selected, you know, it's been like, there's only like 25 people I selected and you were one of them, you know what I mean? And it, and the whole email, I wish I had the email, he made it sound like it was life or death. Like he made it sound like this was my moment. This is my moment. This is your first welcome to the music industry moment, right? So yeah. I'm, you know, I'm like, oh my God, you know? So I remember like, you know, I had to pay to get on the stage and stuff. Mm. So that was like my first, that was like my first, you got to pay to get on stage and then you get like a, a bunch of tickets and you got to sell these tickets. You know what I mean? I didn't end up selling many tickets, obviously. You know, I had a couple of close friends that were like, I support you and all of this stuff. So, you know, we, we all went there. So I get, finally I get up on stage. I remember I had no breath control. I remember like, you know, it's hard and I'm doing like two, three songs and I'm trying to like catch my breath. I remember I'm sweating in front of everybody and things, but I went through the song. I didn't like, I didn't stumble or anything, but you could definitely tell I'm trying to catch my breath. And this was also before the era where like um, the digital was really taken over, over like that. Um, This is early 2010s. This is early 2010s. So I still, I still, had like pressed CDs. I went to Staples. I learned how to press my own CD. I had a little light photo shoot at the time. And like, I just took all of this and I I printed everything out. And uh, I was living in the city at the time. And I remember I pressed it up. I had like 10 in my backpack and shit. And I just remember like giving it out to people, people coming up to me at the end. But that was like a, a very big learning experience from there, just like, and then, I started doing shows after that and I started learning how to really perform and I, I, I would see, you, you start to see after a while like um, people performing, like you could tell who's like good and like yeah. who's amateur and who just started out. So I would go to these shows and keep performing and I would watch the people that were better than me and I would take little things from them and mm-hmm. like, I, oh, okay. I see he controls the crowd. Right? This is how he controls the crowd. Okay. Oh, he tells people to stand up. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. He tells people to chant and stuff. So I was like, so then I would take that home with me and then I would like listen to my own songs and I would like, oh, next time I'm going to do a show, I'm going to tell the crowd to do this. Or you know what? I'm going to jump on that table over there and stuff. So that, that was like, you know what I mean? Yeah. He's become- so then, you know, after a while, I started doing all of the adding these things to my repertoire. And then it, people would be like, oh, like, you know, he's on a chair. He's on a table. He's doing this. Like, yo, this kid is crazy. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> and then I ended up loving performing more and more and more stuff. 
That's cool. It's yeah. one of those things where you gotta, you have to, you gotta have the courage to take that chance. The first time, like, and what happens if I stay on the table and nobody reacts? So, like, you can't I was, care. You can't yeah. care. You yeah, cannot man. care. And that's another, that's another thing, too, when it comes to the performance game. Like, sometimes you're gonna have a great crowd. Sometimes the crowd don't, don't get it or whatever. You cannot care. You have to lock in. You have to do what you have to do. It don't matter. When you start thinking about what everyone else thinks, you get the deer in the headlights. Yep. You get the yes, deer sir. in the headlights, and now it's like, oh, I don't know what to do. They don't like it. Like, nah, fuck that. Keep going. Yeah. Otherwise, you end up being getting embarrassed when you just like, you know, you get the deer in the headlights. You start walking up stage. You don't look confident anymore. And like, as a rapper, the most important thing in your music is confidence. And if people see you not confident, exactly. then you kind of look kind of whack. And it kind of makes me think of uh, exactly. it kind of made me think of like when Drake was at the uh, damn the Tyler Creator Fair, and like they were booing him, and the fan, and like he was yeah. being a, he was being a professional, and he was going on with the performance and was actually like trying to finish, and eventually he had, he did leave stage. But the most important thing was that shows you how you can sometimes you got you can feed off the crowd and use that positive energy to make your performance better. But when the crowd isn't there, you still need to perform as if they are. Yeah, and that just comes to show you too. It don't matter what level you at in this game. There's always gonna be moments like this. I've seen yeah. I've seen big acts get booed off stage before. I've seen big acts like have bad shows sometimes. It it's very normal and it happens. But it's also very important too, like as a as a up and coming artist too, to see all of those moments and take that into consideration and never let them see you sweat like that. I think. I have some. I was gonna ask you a question about the Knicks. I think Dylan, do you have any more music questions? Um, yeah, I do. I do. I do. Um, yeah. so first, the earliest song I found was Leezy's Theory. Um, what would you say is the biggest change in your style from then to now? My biggest change from then, oh man, um, hmm. well, definitely the sound, the production got bigger. That's for mm -hmm. sure. Got bigger. I think the the quality in the records got bigger. You know what I'm saying? That mm -hmm. that song particularly, um, that was on a Mob Deep beat actually that I was rapping on. Uh, and that that song was really the cornerstone of the beginning of mm -hmm. like what you were about to witness into the future and stuff. Mm -hmm. So. You know, what we do here on Pop the Man, we also talk about basketball a little bit. So you told me your favorite team is the New York Knicks. And the New York Knicks is generally synonymous with sadness when it comes to the NBA. It's a whole lot of bad. Uh, we could sit here and talk about the bad in the past couple of decades with them. But instead of doing that, I'd rather ask you, what do you think that the Knicks need to do going forward? Because like right now, I think I saw a report sometime during quarantine. It was like the Knicks are confident they can uh, trade for a disgruntled star rather than hoping for the Knicks disgruntled star or hoping for a, a max free agent like a um, Kevin Durant like become free agent again and then join what do you want the most from the New York Knicks going forward I mean I think the best thing is building talent within and I mean mm. I, I figured that I understand that there's a challenge with that too because we seems like we're never uh, really lucky per se when it comes to the draft as well because we're always either a pick or two away from the guy that we really want or you know there'll be like a last minute disappointment a la Steph Curry when uh you know he was like two picks away from us Golden State takes him when they didn't even need him or you know uh 
fast forward this draft. We want Zion. Last draft, we wanted Zion Williamson. Uh, we're like two picks away from Zion Williamson. And then it's Jay Moran. Then we end up with RJ, which you know, I don't have a problem with RJ, but I think, you know, Zion has been pretty good like as far as what he's been doing as far mm-hmm. as an impact and just going yeah, watching that game with him and LeBron like it just lets me know it's kind of like kind of like a, a torch getting passed yeah or, or about to be passed and stuff um but as far as what the Knicks need to be doing man I just feel like they have to do a way better job at like finding home talent draft you know drafting you have to draft through because nobody nobody wants to come here Nobody really wants to come here. Like, it don't matter how much money we have. None of that stuff seems to matter to them. And you you can't can't talk about, oh, this is the Mecca. We can't talk about, oh, the history or the marketing dollars. Because if they want the marketing dollars, they'll go to Brooklyn. They'll go right across the bridge and they'll go to Brooklyn. And Brooklyn over there right now, they got, they've, they've been able to create a product where they can go into the playoffs. They can always compete. And we can't. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So they'll they'll take a max contract in Brooklyn and they'll have a chance to go into the finals over like with the Knicks, where it's like you never know what you're ever really gonna get with the Knicks, whether it's a front office issue. They we we haven't really done a good job at assembling pieces together here. You know what I mean? I just yeah. get frustrated when I talk about it. You know like, I can nah, nah, I, I can I can feel it. Like, like maybe ain't nothing. Tell you like yo, we had mellow. We had Mellow and we couldn't even get it together with Mellow. Like, you know what I mean? Like, we tried, you know, with Amari and stuff like that. But we couldn't even get it right with them. Like, you already knew what it was. It needs to be a change of guard, first and foremost, I think, at the top. You know, everybody says James Dolan needs to go. Most definitely needs to go. But even if he doesn't go, we need, like, just better GMs and, like, recruiters and terms, in terms of people who can build talent. Because I remember, like, when – um. Donald Sterling, because I'm a Clippers fan. I don't remember Donald Sterling was the owner of the Clippers. The Clippers were able to see some mild success because we ended up having more competent people, at least below him. So I feel like the Knicks got to do that, yeah. at least if he can't get rid of James Dolan. But like, yeah, he, man, like, can we get him in a scandal or something like that? Man? Like, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, voicemails. Yo, it's crazy. It's crazy because it's like, yo, no matter what we do, we bring in Phil Jackson. This guy won like 11 rings. We're like, yo, Phil gonna save us. Can't save us. We bring in D'Antoni. Oh, he was great on the Suns. Yo, he's gonna help us out. Can't do it. Like, we bring in Donnie Walsh. Eh, helped us. He got us a couple of pieces here and there. You know, he, he was actually decent. Let him go. It's like, damn, man, we bring all these great guys. Steve Mills comes in. We bring all these guys with, like, good resumes, solid resumes. They can't do it. Fisdale comes in from the Miami staff. Can't get it done. Like, Bro, what's going on, dog? Like we just running through all these all these talented guys with resumes, and they still can't get it done. What what am I missing? <laughs> because it's because one person cannot change the world, and I think the Knicks too often try to put all their eggs in one basket. And then when they get that one guy, like a like a uh, like a Phil Jackson or like a Dave Fisdale, they stop right there. And it's like okay, we don't have to make any more changes. This one person is going to. Reverse all the bad shit we got going on within the organization, and we don't have to do anything else. They'll fix everything on their own, and that's that's the that's the problem. The Knicks fail whoever they bring in by not continuing to put more smart people around them, and they leave that one person on the island, yeah. and then we put them in the fifth club. And then, yeah, bro. And then the contracts, yo, they be signing people, and they're just like the contracts are horrible, man. I'd be like, yo, word, you signed him for seventy two. Who was the dude that was on? Um, we signed like a couple years back too. It was a point guard. I think he then he ended up being on the Hawks. Forgot his name. Oh, I'm trying to remember. 
Hmm. I'm not they, sure. They gave him. Yeah, I, man, I'm, it, it slipped my mind. This decade. Gave... This past decade. Uh, point guard. They gave a lot of money to. I do not remember. I'm be honest. Grant. Hey. I, Grant, I have not been watching the Knicks that closely in the past five years, so they could easily sign somebody terrible, and I just didn't know. But uh, yeah, they just overpaying for people, and I'm like, yo, we could have just got this guy for this kind of money, like, mm. yeah. So let me ask you this: so, what young player are you excited about that's on the Knicks right now? Because, like you said, I do think homegrown talent is the most important thing you can do in a team like this, because at the very least. If you build a young, promising squad, you could do what the Lakers did and trade them off for Anthony Davis. Or, you know, you might end up having them all bud together and become a dominant force, kind of like what the Warriors did. Yeah, or you just give people a reason, like free agents a reason to want to come on your team. You know like what I'm the, saying? Like, like the okay, Nets. Exactly. Like, yo, these guys are scrappy. They got the eighth seed. You know what I mean? They just barely made it. Yo, they just need a little extra push. I can go over there for a max contract and stuff. Mm -hmm. But, man, when you only win in 20 games, it's like it's hard to convince a Kevin Durant that, yo, he can get a championship over here. Like, yeah. That's you know what I mean? These guys want championships, man. They want they want to they, – they're getting money. They're yeah. getting money. They're getting a lot of money. It's yeah. not It's not – just about the money we keep confusing it and thinking oh it's a max contract no they get in a lot of money a lot of these new dudes want to stockpile on championships they want super teams and they want to get championships period you know what i mean not going to be able to do that with 20 wins so yeah. but to answer your question um the 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 nick the one nick that i really like right now uh is mitchell robinson that's my guy okay yes mitchell robinson that's my nice. guy right now I, I like him i think i think honestly on any other team he could end up being a really good player, like really, like quality, really good quality player. Like he can, he's a great defensive player. He gets blocks, he even gets steals for a big man. Like that's crazy. That's kind of weird and stuff. And then I feel like his offensive game is getting better. So I like Mitchell Robinson a lot. I wanted him, I can't remember what year he was drafted, but it was a year, to the, I think it was actually the year we had, we had two picks and we ended up taking uh, Jerome Robinson. We had Shy and Jerome Robinson. I think Mitchell's in that same draft. And I was like seeing like a bunch of draft analysts were talking about Mitchell Robinson. I can't remember why, I don't, was he, I don't think he played college or something like that. I think he didn't play in the mm -hmm. college. So he, his draft stock ended up falling. And I was thinking like, huh, center can get a bunch of blocks and steals and play defense. I'm like, that's perfect for the Clippers. That's like, I wish, yeah. we, had, I wish we had taken him. But yeah, he's a very talented young player. Like something that something that other players could look forward to be like playing alongside them if you um if exactly you that's somebody like yeah you if you get yourself a real deal like starting to making like oh they're gonna have fun with each other like but, but what do you absolutely. think about Frank what do you think about Frank oh, oh my god oh my god this is like every great New York Nick fan debate you either got pro Frank or anti Frank like so what camp are you in? Here's what I think about Frank. I think that he's a very good role player point guard. Like yeah. he's a guy come off the bench. I don't know if he can't I don't want him to give him 25 minutes or something like that. That's crazy. Like no. you know what I mean? I think he's a good defender. I think he's a guy like for instance, right? If the Knicks get in a situation where they got a top 3 pick and like if we can if we can get like a a, a Lamelo ball or something like that, and then just have Frank like come in, like as the backup. That'd be cool off the bench. I think he, he can give you some quality. Yeah. But no, yeah, yo, yo, Knicks fans be going crazy on Frank. Like, because nah, because I think you're right. I think he's miscast. Like, 
he's not really a starting point guard because his inability to score, but he's he's serviceable off the bench where he can come in, guard multiple positions. He can make some great passes and reads, but you don't want your starting point guard that can't shoot. Not in today's NBA. That's his problem. Unless he learn how to shoot, that's it. Yeah, man. Like he just gives me like George Hill vibes and stuff when he yeah, early George Hill. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I'd rather be Frank in New York than Dennis. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, what's your team? You got a you got a team in basketball? Yes, sir. Timberwolves. We uh, okay, yeah, yeah, we, we, like we getting it. there. We getting there. A lot of pain. I like your team, man. It's a lot of pain and suffering on this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> we gonna do it. Clippers, Timberwolves, and Knicks. Yeah, no, but I like I, I actually like the Timberwolves squad. They got a nice little squad on them, though. Yeah. I like them, I like them after that trade for sure. Man, that yeah. Miss Beasley trade was a difference, man. We also, uh, thank God. Also, the guard y'all think about was Tim Hardaway Jr. That's the guy. Yes, that's the guy. Yeah, we signed him for a seventy-two million dollar deal. Like that was, <laughs> it was crazy. I, and, and like I've watched him play, and I was like, yeah, I mean, you're not that good. I mean, come on, seventy-one million. And that was, and that was like a good summer free agency. That was a good summer free agency. And the first pick they do, the first signing they make is him. I was like, oh. What? See, hey, that's what the Knicks do. If they miss out on one, two, and three, they're like, all right, hey, 50, we give you them bag because they got to give it to somebody. somebody. Yeah. But see, I think somebody. I think that's what the Knicks do. They, like, overreact, and they're like, we got to give it to somebody. You don't have to give it to somebody. I mean, like, you don't you know, have to. The Heat, that money where they gave out a lot of stupid contracts, it was pretty short-term contracts. Like, they gave Tyler Johnson, like, two years. The Knicks are going to give you four years, like, 18 Play, million. Player right. option. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's why like that. In one sense, a certain tier of players they like going to the Knicks because of that. Some of the I said a certain tier, a certain tier. If you want to cash out, you come to the Knicks. You know what I'm saying? You make a lot of money. You might win thirty games. You might not. But what do you care? Like in New you York, know? yeah, you know, you know that's that's exactly. what Julius that's what Julius Randle, Bobby Portis. Uh, Taj Gibson, all of them cash in. All power forwards. They're like, man, they signed the power forwards. Hope it ain't too late for me. And it wasn't too late. They, they signed them too. <laughs> it's true. Oh, it's true. <laughs> oh, man. But all right, Shy. That's that's all the questions I have. Delon, you have any closing thoughts? No, sir. I'm good. All right, Shy. We appreciate you having, having you on, man. Been a, like I said, we're avid fans of you now. Whenever you need something, let us know. If you are listening right now, make sure you check out Shaz Project, Lambs, Beans, and Rice. I think I said that backwards. But Beans, <laughs> Rice, and Lamb. Beans, Rice, and Lamb. <laughs> I, don't know what, I don't know what happened to me. Beans, Rice, and Lamb. Make B-R-L. sure you guys check it out. B-R-L. All right. All right. All right. Thank you for tuning in to the episode of the Popular Man Podcast. Tune in next week for the episode of your favorite podcast. See you then.